Though this message is designed to stand on its own, the value of its content will be greatly enhanced by listening to the previous message on the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, which introduces this study. I also want to acknowledge the work of Dr. Dwight Pryor, Professor Ken Bailey, and Dr. Brad Young for their research and writings, which greatly contributed to this study. Hello, welcome to Nightlight. Anyone who has been related to the church for any amount of time has heard a sermon or two on the prodigal son, as we erroneously call it. It seems pretty straightforward story, doesn't it? It doesn't take a <clears throat> theological genius to figure it out. But one of our problems that we have, if we have been a long-time church member or associated with Christian things for years, is that we tend to think, because we know something about something, that we know everything about it that needs to be known. Well, we won't say that, but that's kind of an attitude we all can cop. Some things we know may be good and right. I'm sure they are. But that can become the enemy of the greater good if that keeps us from going further into the heart of of Scripture. There are hidden treasures in the parables of Jesus that don't contradict what we see on the surface, of course, but they greatly enhance what is already to us obvious. And I'm convinced that some of the things that we desperately want to know about God and about ourselves are found in those places where we don't bother to dig, where we just assume that we understand. We've heard it before. Yeah, 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 we've heard it before. I'm finding more and more that answers that I need are in the scriptures that I didn't underline. You know, the ones that uh, didn't make an impression before. Now, deeper levels of truth are available if we're willing to search them out, but we would not even know that there was anything else to search for if we didn't make the effort to to dig and to start reevaluating our preconceived ideas about things we've heard before and therefore think that we understand them. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't gain the most vital truth from even surface readings. It also doesn't mean that God is trying to be unnecessarily mysterious. But the book of Proverbs says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to seek it out. And Jesus said, whatever is hidden will be revealed. And then he said, I will send you the spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth. And Paul said, quoting Isaiah, that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But then Paul added, but he has revealed them to us by his Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to teach you these things. Psalm 25, he says, those who fear me, I will show you the deep inner meaning of my covenant. Now, that's not meant to imply some kind of esoteric, weird, extra-biblical, non-biblical revelation that some New Ager or Gnostic might try to offer you. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about going beyond the surface to the heart of the matter. Uh, Jesus had 12 disciples. Of those disciples, one was a betrayer. Uh, Three were intimately close to him. One was so close to him that 
He called himself the disciple Jesus loved. So, you know, there's there's lots of different places you can stand in reference to the Lord. And I'm not saying who goes to heaven, who doesn't. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about how much do you want to know him and draw near to him. Because I'll tell you something. I want to know him. I want to draw near to him. I want to, I want to know his heart. Because he's the meaning of life. And I can't comprehend anybody that says they know him that that doesn't have that hunger and that desire. And I'm convinced that a whole lot about Jesus is revealed in the parables and in aspects of them that we have not bothered to learn because of our tendency to think we already know it. So that's why we're spending so much time on this. And we, we you know, I started the last session claiming that I was going to address the story of the prodigal son. And we spent an hour preparing to address that parable. Now I've spent another 10 minutes in introduction and we haven't gotten to the parable yet. And there's reasons for that because everything I'm saying is is necessarily preparatory. So uh, if you're willing to stick with me through this, I think of all the parables Jesus ever told, this is the one that, at least for this generation, holds the greatest place in our hearts. And I think the the reason's obvious. We have been, for so long now, a fatherless culture. I mean, we were fatherless 30 years ago when we began to address the subject, but it's only increased in, in, uh, in pain and problems. We don't need to restate what almost anybody knows, either from their own or others' experience. Fatherlessness is the curse of the 20th century and now into the 21st. Thankfully, there are exceptions, but for the most part, most hearts feel orphaned. I heard a story years ago, and there's various versions of this story. Sometimes it's a Mexican story. Sometimes it's an Irish story. Sometimes it's, you know, various settings, but the story goes that uh, an Irish father got into a terrible argument with his son, Patrick, and Patrick stormed out the door and ran away. Months went by with no communication, and the the father, in grief and, and concern, went to the city square and placed a big poster on the town center that said, My dear Patrick, all is forgiven. Please meet me here at noon tomorrow. I love you. Papa. And the next day there were dozens of boys gathered around that sign, all named Patrick, desperately looking for Papa. Now, yeah, it's a parable, but it's a true parable. If ever there was a true picture of the condition that we're describing, that's it. We long for this parable of the town square to be true that there is a loving Father and there is hope for reconciliation. There is a place to come home to. And it is true. But some are so hurt and angry and confused by their own rebellion or suffering that they've convinced themselves that they don't need anybody. This is what it truly means to be orphaned. An orphan is not so much one who longs for love as one who has so given up any hope of love that he or she has developed a mindset that says, I don't need anybody. I can do it all on my own, just like I've always had to do. Now, a prodigal, remember, is not one who necessarily sleeps with pigs, as we have tended to erroneously think. We need to understand the word prodigal. 
it comes from the same Latin root uh, as our word prodigious, lavish, extravagant. So the prodigal son <clears throat> is not really really the issue of the uh, the story, is it? His prodigal misuse of of his father's money is secondary to the prodigal heart of the father whose lavish, extravagant love <clears throat> is extended for the restoration of, the, of this boy. We, we all know this. I know we know this. You know, if, if you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, I know this story, been there, done that, then you got to stick with me because I have a major point that I want to make here that I don't think we've grasped before in most circles. And that's this. Yes, the, it should be called the prodigal father, not the prodigal son. That in itself seems to suggest that somewhere along the way, as is true in so many aspects of the Gentile church, we've lost our way in rightly interpreting the words of Jesus. We didn't totally miss it. Uh, we didn't totally get there either. <laughs> and our lack of understanding has created a theological disconnect which we never ever seem to reconcile. On the one hand, we have an image of God as an angry judge, insulted by our sin, <clears throat> fully ready to send utter destruction on us. But for some reason, he finds somewhere in his angry nature uh, an expression of redemption and makes a way through the cross for his insulted righteousness to be satisfied via human sacrifice, which then uh, <clears throat> balances the, the, the unbalanced books and the, the, the courtroom of heaven is satisfied and we receive the benefit of that sacrifice and become declared by a legal fiction, it's called, to be pardoned and even made just or justified. Now, before you get nervous about the way I'm describing this, please understand that there are certain elements of truth in everything that I just listed. God is holy, obviously, yes. Sin does insult his holiness. God's wrath is against all ungodliness. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was an atoning sacrifice. Receiving that atoning blood does wash our sins away and makes us justified. The courts of heaven are satisfied. But is that all we can find to say about the heart of God? I mean, I've got dozens of books in my library by highly respected theologians that I respect. I mean, I love them. I've learned from them. But in almost every one of them, there's this mantra repeated that though there are various other images of justification of, uh, of atonement in the scripture, the only one that really, really matters is justification. And uh, the only thing that really matters is that God's just righteousness, his just judgment against unrighteousness has been satisfied. So his wrath can be assuaged and uh, the, the image always eventually produces a concept in the imagination of God holding his nose and though it's against his best desires, he will let us in because of Jesus. But Jesus needs to keep us out of his eyesight as much as possible because he only loves us because he loves Jesus. And he's only allowing us in because Jesus wants us. And, uh, I know there's scripture that contradicts that, but, but I'm talking about the heart. I'm talking about the way people's hearts carry around the idea in their mind of God the Father in reference to atonement 
justice, wrath, redemption, so forth. Now, if this is the main issue, if this is the core issue and everything else is secondary or even tertiary to this, then why didn't Jesus spell that out better than he did by offering a parable that would exemplify all those judicial and legal punitive elements? It would seem that the story should have gone more something like this. The son insults the father by asking for his inheritance, implying his desire that his father be dead. I wish you were dead, but you're not, so give me my inheritance anyway. The father is enraged by his son's arrogance and sinful behavior and lets his wrath be known. The elder brother steps up to take his father's wrath upon himself and becomes a sacrifice to save his younger brother from the just punishment. The older son dies in the process, satisfying the father's dishonored dignity, and the younger son is allowed back into the family, still a sinner, but covered by his brother's robe. The father loves both sons, but the younger son stays out of his way as much as possible, sensing the austere majesty he has offended Though he's thankful for not being killed, he's not likely to run into his father's presence and crawl up in his lap, and they lived happily ever after. Really? It should already be obvious that I won't fully answer all the questions that I'm raising by this description in one hour, maybe in one lifetime. But after nearly 40 years of being related to church ministry and over 50 years of dealing with myself, I have to ask some maybe uncomfortable questions here. How do we reconcile these two seemingly contradictory images of God? Both images, the angry, judicious lawgiver and the loving, merciful father, are fully embraced by evangelical Christianity. All of us have heard sermons from both perspectives. Some might say that Well, it's just one of those paradoxes that we have to embrace with two hands. On the one hand, God is like this, but on the other hand, he's like that. That sounds more like a a description of a schizophrenic alcoholic than it does Almighty God. Uh, You know, on the one hand, he loves me, but on the other hand, if you catch him at the wrong moment, he may knock my head off. And if you come from a background where that has been your experience with love, quote-unquote, then... Religion becomes a contributor to your disintegration on the inside instead of an integrating force for good. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to see this with two hands. I say it all the time. Most truth has to be dealt with with two hands. There are all sorts of paradoxes in the mystery of life that require thinking with two hands, and there's all sorts of that in Scripture. Sovereignty of God on one hand, free will on the other. Losing our life to save it. Rulers must be servants. Or in the world of physics, light is both particle and wave. Time is relative. There's lots of examples we could use. That would be an entire study in itself, one I hope we can get into one day. But with all the true paradox uh, that, that there is to examine. Some things are not true paradox that some attempt to call paradox. They're simply total contradictions. They both cannot be true. A paradox is not a contradictory statement that you just have to accept uh, on face value. Paradox implies that there's mystery you don't know yet that reconciles it and you, you trust 
the character uh, behind the paradox until you can understand the paradox. But just outright total contradiction can't be true. God loves you, but he hates you. God wants to save you, but he predestined you for damnation. Uh, Those aren't paradoxes. Those are complete irrationalities that have no place in this world or the world to come. And I've actually had people at times say to me, well, you know, you just you just don't have the revelation. I'm not, I'm not going to ever get a revelation of something that's totally nonsensical. You know, it, it just won't ever happen. Uh, if that's not true, then truth cannot ever really be known, and God is not really revealing himself, <clears throat> but he's so obscuring himself that uh, truth just can't be known. Now, Either one is so and the other is not, or the other is so and the one is not. And when it comes to the heart of God, I don't think it's a good thing, or even a possible thing, for us to merely ignore the terrible inner divide that we feel over the question, what is God really like, and how does he really feel about me? Now, I know, I can hear them right now in my head, some theologians who just blow a cork because I, I, I relegated the high and holy and austere mystery of the subject to mere human feelings, somebody might say. And I know because I've talked to them. It's not about how you feel. And I understand that. I, you know, I'm, I'm right at the forefront of the, of the argument that we have become touchy-feely, humanistic in our worship, that, that church, for the most part, in many circles, has just become a, an emotional uh, uh, orgy of self-centeredness that has nothing to do with the worship of the, of the living God. And I'm very disturbed about it. But you know what? Even though I'm disturbed about that, I'm equally disturbed by the contradiction that I'm describing here that may very certainly have contributed to this disintegration in uh, theology that has made people say, you know what, I can't live with this. The, 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 the cognitive dissidence that this creates inside of me that I can't reconcile uh, is not just something I can just attribute to mystery that and just continue to worship. If you If you make God out to look like he's really the author of evil, and that he created evil for his own purposes so he can get glory out of it. So suffering children and suffering people and suffering innocence is also God can be glorified. I'm sorry, I can't live with that. I can't function with that. And so maybe, maybe this failure in theology that I'm describing here has contributed to the very thing that I rant so much against, and that's the humanistic touchy-feely orgy that has become modern Christianity. So we face a new danger, just when some of you might have become happy that I'm going to try to address a long-ignored difficulty in theology that has in some cases been the root cause of deep mental anguish. I'm going to ruin it by stating from the other point of view that we cannot reduce God down to a mere affectionate parent in the sky. God is holy. That means not so much that he behaves well, but that he is beyond any comparison to anything. Who is like unto you, O Lord, among the gods? He cannot be reduced down to a sentimental idol created in our own image, 
coming out of our best childish wishes for a grandfather, Santa Claus. God is terrifying. He is beyond knowing unless he himself makes himself known. We would not know how or where to find him if he chose not to be findable or knowable. So before any of you can become worried that I'm about to go off into some humanistic tirade against the traditional view of God, just stop and ask yourself, do you rest in the love of God truly? Or do you practice a form of mental gymnastics that has to jump around to avoid a breakdown over a tormenting kind of fear of God that you don't know how to, to deal with? So you just go into denial. I think that's a very important question, don't you? I deal with a lot of leaders, and it's not an uncommon thing for me to speak to some, many, who have highly auspicious theological degrees, who publicly preach a God of unapproachable holiness and judgment, but privately, secretly, they cannot bear to live with this God they present publicly. They live in torment, self-doubt, fear of the future, shame of the past, often such a hunger for love that they are caught up in all sorts of moral struggles and have all kind of chosen painkillers, from porn to adultery to you name it. They cannot live in the real world with the theology that they proclaim publicly to believe. And in many cases, their closet, uh, closeted behavior, uh, behind closed doors, uh, they're, they're oppressive to the people that they claim to love. Uh, their families are victims of their inner rage and confusion, outbursts of harshness, legalistic ways of handling conflicts or problems. Law instead of love governs their house. Punitive reactions instead of patient action is the way they raise their children. Never mind that you can counter what I seem to be saying. I say seem to be because I'm playing devil's advocate a bit here to help us think it will become clearer if you stick with me. But never mind that you can counter what I seem to be saying with scores of scriptures. Let me counter that with another statement some might find blasphemous. But just quoting scripture as an answer, quote-unquote, can just become another form of the problem. Jesus was constantly hounded by religious leaders that flipped scripture at him. The devil quoted scripture to him. Jesus told the Pharisees in John 5 that even though they searched the scriptures daily, they still refused to come to him and find life. So just flipping a few proof texts out in a given subject, even a whole bunch of proof texts, even if it seems airtight, like a legal case, which is the problem, still will not answer what I'm seeking to ask here. I'm suggesting that truth is not found just in reading scripture. But I'm not suggesting that truth is found apart from or above scripture. I said truth is found in more ways than just reading scripture. And I'm saying that our handling of scripture must be certainly lacking in clear understanding or the lives of many Christians I know would not be so weak, confused, filled with lapses of all kinds, and ultimately filled with a fear of God that is not healthy and is destructive. John tells us in chapter 1 of his gospel that Jesus came to earth to reveal the Father. That word reveal there is the word for exegete. Jesus came to exegete, to unfold, to explain, reveal, make accessible 
the heart of God to fallen man. So with all due respect to the many theories of atonement, and they are called theories, by the way, for good reason. They are theories. I think it's safe to give some respect to theology while going straight to the source to receive his exegesis on the matter. What does the Lord Jesus Christ have to say to us about what his Father is like and what he thinks of us? Once we have examined that question, maybe we can come back and revisit these other issues I have so rudely opened up here without neatly reclosing. I want them to hang in the air over our heads, unsatisfied for a little while. Once we've been with Jesus and really heard what he has to say about God's heart, we then can return to these difficult and for some haunting questions with ears wide open and hearts ready to receive from him. Now, I'm first to admit, I'm not the voice of God, obviously. I don't know everything, obviously. And I'm quite sure that wiser and more erudite and and more highly trained uh, minds than mine could run circles around me theologically on this, but I'm not trying to, to, uh, to offer another theological treatise on a subject that others have dealt with with more uh, erudition and more capacity and more uh, ability. I only want to address one basic thing, and that is, do you know what it is to be loved by the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know what that is? Not just in your head, but in the deep parts of you that hurt, that are alone, that are afraid, and that still fall into various sins. Because one of the reasons you fall is because you're so desperate for love and you can't seem to find it. In the previous time together, we examined the first two parts of this three-part parable. There are three pictures of one story here. Three lost items, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and now a lost son or daughter, as the case may be. All three stories are needed in order to grasp the one truth. So if you fail to hear the previous message, please listen first before continuing. And if you are a new believer and are unfamiliar with the story in the Bible, please turn off the CD now and go read Luke 15 uh, before you listen. But if you're, if you're ready, we'll go now, finally, to the pinnacle of this ascent up to the heart of God, the story of the lost son and the loving prodigal father, which we tend to misname the prodigal son. I have stacks of important and exciting material in front of me that I have been looking forward to teaching on this subject of the prodigal son. And yet, to be honest, it has taken me a couple of days and a lot of effort to finally get here and begin. Uh, the reason for that is because I'm finding that I have to wrestle through some things inside of me that were stirred up by this study. Among them is the memory of my many failures as a father. This is not the place to delve into that fully, obviously. But I mention it mainly because it may be stirred up in some of my listeners also. We all know we live in an age of affluence and materialism and abundance. 
regardless of how tentative that all may seem in the current economic crisis. Uh, That crisis has been brought on partly by our corporate inability to say no to ourselves. And so in many cases, we may have failed to say no to our children. So I'm aware of this problem that we have of overindulgence and lack of discipline. While at the very same time, I'm sitting here feeling a bit of grief over not how spoiled my children are, but how harsh I have been in my dealings with them at times. This has nothing to do with mere sentimentality. I'm not sitting here lamenting over this out of some self-pitying emotional state of mind. I'm trying to be sober and honest for the purpose of becoming more Christ-like as a husband and as a father and as a person, and also in order to help you hopefully avoid or heal the same mistakes. It's said of George MacDonald, the great Scottish novelist and mentor of C.S. Lewis, that he never remembered his father telling him no about anything or denying him anything if it was in his father's power to give it. (laughs) Think about that. Now, before we all begin to caterwaul against what we might misjudge as bad parenting on the senior McDonald's part, we better first look at the fruit of the senior McDonald's parenting style, then look at the fruit of our own culture. Uh, in an age when it was common for people to make sure their children performed well outwardly by severe discipline, regardless of what kind of inner emotional desert that may create for the child's heart. George MacDonald's father raised a man who would become one of the foremost examples of godliness in his age and in our generation by never refusing his son anything, by never saying no. Well, not exactly. Maybe it would be clearer for us to say such a godly son was produced by having such a bond of love with his father that that father knew he could entrust most anything to his son that his son asked of him because the bond of love would be present to correct any misuse that might arise. We'll have to leave those questions to another time. But for now, can we lay aside our own struggles over how we may or may not have failed our own children by either overindulgence or by overdiscipline and try to focus on what Jesus is trying to teach us about his father and our father, the father of us all. I believe whatever we find from Jesus will begin to bring whatever correction is needed in all the other areas of our lives that we wrestle with. So let's look at the background and setting and audience in which this story is presented. Remember that Jesus' audience is a mixture, Pharisees and religious leaders as well as peasants and some of the lowest of society are all in this mix of people. Remember from our previous study that the self-righteous part of his audience is anxious that Jesus spell out what the righteous are to be like and how the unrighteous need to repent. So Jesus begins a series of stories about repentance, and yet none of those stories says about it what the self-righteous wanted Jesus to say about it. He has told about a good shepherd going after a wayward sheep, a coin searched for by a woman 
desperately in search of that lost coin. And now the ultimate, he's about to tell of a father who had two sons. So far, there's little going on in the sheep or in the coin that could be cited as acts of contrition or for having been lost. They're lost and and they're sought after by one who cares for them. So far, it's the seeker of that which is lost that is exhibiting all the emotion and exerting all the effort that will result in the return or the turning around of events. But now we've come to a story about a father and two sons, and the self-righteous leaders can sit back and enjoy this final story because everybody knows this is one of those everybody knows things, you know. Everybody knows a story about a father and two sons. There'll be clearly set societal norms of behavior that would be ensconced in such a story, and they have to be honored. The sons must behave a certain way, and the father even more so. And that's exactly what Jesus knows they're going to think and wants them to think, because he's about to purposefully overthrow these everybody knows social mores just like he turned over the tables of the money changers. Here's some facts about the younger son. Number one, Jesus tells of a younger son who does the unthinkable. In fact, in years of research over this question, Dr. Ken Bailey, who lived among the people of the Middle East for a great number of years in his adult life, only found two cases that were in any way similar to what the son has done to his father in asking for his property before the father dies. An Arab son asked for his property early. And by the way, notice that I'm using the word property, not inheritance. And I'll explain the necessity for that change of linguistics in a minute. The enraged father killed that son. In the other case, a Jewish son asked for his property early, and it was given him, but the father died shortly from grief. This is the mindset of the culture in which this story arises. So at the very beginning, Jesus is shocking the sensibilities on purpose. He's describing a son who is saying virtually, I wish you were dead so I could have access to my property now, but since you are not dead, might I have it in a way as if you were dead. Number two, notice I made a difference between inheritance and property. I've often misquoted this by saying he asked for his inheritance. But this is a major part of the insult, and it reveals another level to which the younger son is willing to stoop to fulfill his own selfishness. Notice he says not, give me my inheritance. His words are chosen carefully. For inheritance means all the mature responsibilities that go with the office of ownership. And the social demand on him would then be to use that inheritance in order to continue to build the house of his father, to manifest continued productivity for the sake of the community that is dependent on that house, and to provide a sound future for his father's grandchildren. This is all being rejected, along with his rejection of the father. He carefully chooses his words like a crooked lawyer spinning a case. Notice, give me the share of the property that falls to me. 
the word uh, in the Greek text, ausia, property, is uh, a very specific word used to make a difference between uh, the responsibility of, of uh, inheritance. The word inheritance, kleronomia, would have been the word used if he was asking to take on the responsibility of the house. Ausia, property, is just a word that says, give me my stuff. Number three, he is speaking accurately. The Torah does state in Deuteronomy 21, verse 17, that the younger son's portion is one-third. The law does not specifically say that the son must wait for his father's death. Everyone in Jesus' audience would immediately recognize that what Jesus is describing is not an act of illegal crime against law, but rather a crime against love. The son is not seeking to break a law. He's seeking to break a relationship. He does not steal what is not his materially, but he is as acting as murderously as if he was trying to kill his father. Because this this could kill him. And he does it anyway. Number four, he is also taking away one-third of the wealth of his community under his father's care. So again, even though it is legal, it is an act against all sense of love and decency. All the livestock, property, and whatever else is removed from the household is going now from being able to be a contribution to the good of the whole into the hands of one single selfish individual. They are impoverished immediately by his decision, but even worse, he will sell these precious items cheaply because a man in a hurry to liquidate his assets becomes uh, a drain like a cancer. He has big plans in a far country. He's going to sell off his stuff as fast as he can for as much cash as he can whittle out of the deal. So the community might enjoy such bargains. They cannot ignore the spirit behind what he's doing, though, while they're bargaining with him and they're getting deals. Yet they will disdain him for it even while they are doing business with him in the process. Number five, this action will forfeit any future inheritance. This is unthinkable to Jesus as hearers. A man's inheritance is his name, his family, his roots, his security, his marriage, his identity, his future. In other words, it's everything. But for the immediate gratification of his youthful pride or lust or anger or whatever it is that's driving him, and it could be all of those or one of them, He's willing to do this. You can bet Jesus has the attention of every listener, and they must be working hard in their imaginations by now to try to sort out where this story is going to go, and more to the point, how they may be being portrayed in it. And the last, his actions are motivated by various mixtures, may be exacerbated by his older brother's attitude, which we will examine in a moment. But regardless of all that, nothing in the story allows for any reason to mistreat his father in this way. His reaction to his brother, his angst for the city life, and his longing for independence, whatever it was, is totally without excuse. He has simply, arbitrarily, rejected his father's love 
and therefore his guidance and ultimately his presence and cost everyone in his life dearly in the bargain. Now, the older son or the older brother. In a Middle Eastern village, there are no secrets. Everybody knows everything. And unlike our Western villages where we might not know, so we make up our own version via gossip, in this situation, there are no empty gaps to fill in with speculation. It is just the nature of the culture in the Middle East for everything that happens to be pretty much known by everybody in a matter of seconds. As a result, careful dynamics have evolved to help maintain peace. For instance, no quarrel is ever worked out between the two people involved in the quarrel. There would always be a loser and a winner in those cases. And that would mean one must lose face, and that would be an even worse injury than the original argument was. So there's always a third party who is the mediator. In such a situation as this story, everyone knows who is responsible to mediate. It's the older brother. He's fully expected to step in on behalf of his grieved father, and even if he hates the younger brother, for his father's sake, he will seek to bring healing and restoration of the relationship. But in a culture where relationship is everything, and father and son and brother relationships above all, Still, the older brother refuses to mediate. Again, this means far more than you and I are able to grasp culturally without some help. To us, it's kind of simple. Well, he's mad at his brother and won't say anything to him. That's understandable. And that's true. But to Jesus' audience watching this unfolding story here, this is what they would be feeling. Oh, no. Now, not not only is the father rejected and dishonored and bereft of his younger son, but he will leave with no goodbye, no hug, no warmth, no open door, keeping possibility of restoration and correction available. And the father now has to live with this pain on top of everything else. For due to the circumstances, the father would have been unable to see his son off. It would have been a wrong symbol of affirmation of his son's actions and therefore a dishonor to the rest of the community. But he would have taken comfort in the fact that his younger son would have been appealed to at the last moment by the older brother. And even if he still refused to see reason and accept love, at least the last words of the older brother would have been words of grace and invitation to please change his mind and return if he got down the road and began to realize what he was doing. For the grave dangers of the road at the time of this story meant often that sending a loved one away on a journey meant you may never see them again and may never know if they are alive or dead. So the audience is being brought to deep grief and sympathy with this father who is suffering layer upon layer of hurt and mistreatment by both his sons. And they have got to be wondering by this time, at what point this grief in the Father is going to turn into self-protective rage and righteous retribution against such unmitigated evil. They know from generations of experience that that's what they should expect. Nothing good can come from this story, they think. So then what about the Father? 
It's of great importance to notice that Jesus refers to the Father as having divided his living between both sons. The signal goes out to the community now. Something terrible has happened, caused by the younger son. Nothing good is being offered by the angry older brother. The son is known by what he's done. The older brother is known by what he has not done. But no retribution is coming from the father. And now it seems that this father has withheld any retribution and has simply fulfilled the requirements of the law for his sons. This means they both have what we call the right of possession. They do not have the right of disposition. The father is still controller of the estate, and he alone has the right to decide how to respond to the events set in motion by both sons. The people are shocked by the attitude of both sons, and they are even more shocked by the seeming self-restraint of the dishonored father. They are maybe a bit puzzled by his gracious willingness to extend to them their rights of possession in the face of their lack of correct relating to him. The father in Jesus' story has not killed his son. He has not publicly disowned his son. But he has not even angrily dismissed him within earshot of the eavesdropping neighbors or servants. If he had disowned him, there would be no story. This would be Grace enough for the audience to try to imagine that he has not done anything negative toward the son. That, to them, would have been amazing. Absence of punitive or vengeful wrath is more than they can ever hope for in their best moments, but that is far from the point Jesus is about to make. Not only is he shocking them with the absence of wrath, but they're not prepared for the presence of grace on the level Jesus is about to unveil. For it is for certain by now that Jesus is not using the typical Middle Eastern father as a model for the Father in heaven. Jesus will not use any earthly model of cultural rules to exegete the heart of his Father to his listeners. Jesus is about to weave a story which, though it has no parallel in the people's experience, certainly has one in their deepest needs and highest hopes. For though their minds are spinning with questions and their sensibilities are being shaken by an increasing lack of what everybody knows should be happening, deep down at their core, there must be rising in anticipation that maybe, just maybe, what they've always longed for but never allowed themselves to even imagine might be true. What if... Above the hue and cry of broken human relationships, there was a father. Not an emperor, not a judge, not an executioner, but an Abba. For now and then, and only for a few moments in their mostly difficult lives, love gentleness, mercy, and goodness showed up now and then. It only happened just enough to make them long for more, usually left them aching from such a small taste of it that they wondered if maybe it might not have been better to never have tasted it at all than to have it and then see it fade away. Then comes this rabbi, 
this young rabbi from Nazareth, and speaking with an authority no one had ever spoken before, and he is seemingly about to say things that might imply that what they had longed for all their lives and thought could never be is actually so. That the momentary tastes of love and goodness are coming from a source of that same love and goodness that was meant to be the normal way of living, not the exception. That love is not meant to be a flash of light in a normal darkness, but a sunrise that dispels darkness forever. If you could take the time to study all the background information of all the parables Jesus told, which, by the way, is something that we hope to be able to provide you the tools to do soon, you'd find a common thread that in each of them, uh, Jesus has one main goal above all the other goals of his parables. That is to dispel misconceptions of justice and punishment and love and mercy and to reveal the true heart of God that has become uh, obfuscated and, and covered over and confused in the minds of the people. And these wrong conceptions have become accepted norms in the minds of the religious people, adulterated with human errors, born out of fallen misinterpretations of truth. So Jesus has to hold the real truth in proper honor, while he at the same time is rebuking and correcting religious traditional ideas that are false. And these wrong ideas are all based on the real truth, but have become distorted. Then the distortion becomes the, quote, orthodoxy of the day. So that what was meant for good becomes a source of great evil. And worse, it's now done in the name of God and in the name of orthodox truth. Now, it's easy for us to sit and, and observe that in the Pharisees because, of course, we're never Pharisees, are we? But I'm much more concerned about how this might be happening in us right now. What was once meant to offer clarity in life has now produced confusion and death. The letter kills, the Spirit gives life. Jesus said in John six sixty three, the words that I speak to you, they are Spirit. And they are life. And the words Jesus is speaking to this particular gathering of mismatched people who are listening to this story are, is bringing life and hope on a level that it's hard for us to understand. No human voice, mere human voice, could have done it. Our over-familiarity with these stories have made us insensitive to the shocking level of confrontation that is occurring in in the people as Jesus speaks. Therefore, we don't grasp the power of the rebuke it levies against the self-righteous, nor do we grasp the baptism of hope and love that is drenching the imaginations of the hurting, fallen, sinful people there. I mean, try to imagine it. You're a Jewish man or woman raised under the sound of the Torah. You lay awake at night after maybe participating in some sinful action uh, which has slowly wrapped itself around your soul like a python, uh, habitual attempts to soothe pain, 
now and then you remember the words of life you were taught. Maybe you wistfully remember what it felt like to be a part of a holy celebration community of worshipers. You were part of it. The songs, the dances, the liturgies and sacrifices, they're all in the foundational uh, bedrock of your memory. But then, for whatever reason, the struggles of life, the disappointments in relationships, and the failures of your uh, attempts to make life work have brought you down to a level of living that is in total opposition to all that you've been taught, all that your people embrace as good and true. And it's harder for you than it would be had you never known than to have tasted it and lost it. For now, the memory of it is not only not only doesn't bring any help, but on the contrary, it starts piling up ever-increasing feelings of shame and loss and guilt. You're considered refuse by the bright and shining spiritual leaders, the righteous ones, and they never miss an opportunity to remind you of that fact. And they love to hold it over your head. So all you really can look forward to is the day of judgment. Now this is no exaggeration of the way it was for them, but I can't help but wonder in the light of all this where we are in in a similar scenario. I can easily imagine myself as one of the low life, <laughs> the memories of my dark days in the underbelly of various cities, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Houston, the Gulf Coast regions, vividly brings back to my mind what it felt like to wish I could tear my skin off and escape me. I can remember voices in my head gleefully quoting scripture. You know, devils can quote scripture. They'd quote to me all the good that was out there, but that I was no longer a part of. I knew what was true. I knew what I was. And I knew that I was far, far away from being united with that truth anymore, if ever I really had been. It was not hard to imagine that I had gone too far, fallen too much, failed too often. There was no hope now, just living from one dark moment to another, trying to medicate the pain with whatever habit I had bowed to. But today I'm not there. Miracles too numerous to tell here brought me home. So today I have to ask myself if somewhere along the line I have become one of the righteous. God forbid, but could it be possible that after all I have been saved from, after all I have been forgiven, that instead of remembering the mercy on me, and therefore showing mercy, I have over and over forgotten that truth and looked down my self-righteous nose at someone in the dirt, and maybe not as deeply in the dirt as I was when I was in it. Instead of remembering mercy, I offer judgment. All, all the while thinking, you know, patting myself on the back that I'm standing for righteousness. I say this respectfully, but I, I must say it, that in all the years of being in church, and that's about 50, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on this parable that spent any time examining the older brother, except to the degree that his presence has to be brought in in order for there to be a story, because he's an integral part of the story, but... All the attention is on the return of the prodigal. 
it is then used as an invitation for wayward prodigals to come forward for salvation. You know, it's every head bowed, every eye closed, soft music plays. I mean, you know the way it goes. But what if we never talk about the older brother or give his part of the story its rightful place because we are him? We're so much him that his part of the story escapes our notice. If we measure what is important by the number of words given to a subject, then the description of the older brother is nearly as long and detailed as the return of his younger brother. I know people might say, well, it's it's a very natural thing to do, isn't it? I mean, a teacher only has so much time. and Obviously, the main point of the story is the return of the prodigal. It, well, I mean, is it? We say it is, but I mean, I don't think the main part of the story is the return of the prodigal, except to the degree we've made it to be that way. But, uh, you know, you might say, well, of course, the first half of the story gains ascendancy over the second for obvious reasons. And maybe I could buy that except for one thing. When I look at the church, and that includes me, and the way we have so failed to love the world rightly. We love the world, I'm afraid, but not the way Jesus intended us to love it. We're so busy trying to politically manipulate things in order to protect our little white picket fence to keep the pagans out instead of really loving people. I just wonder if the reason we don't spend much time talking about the second half of the story is because we are the older brother. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.